Hello, my wonderful friends, and welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. This this is a special one. Uh, not only do we have an amazing guest who's going to be joining us, uh, but this is episode number 56 of the podcast, and it's actually one year ago uh, today, uh, as of the release of this episode, is when I started uh, the What If Project, when the What If Project went live. So this is this is the one year birthday. So like happy birthday to the What If Project podcast. Uh, many of you have been around since day one. Uh, so thank you for your love, uh, for your support, uh, for your encouragement. Uh, it has inspired me. It has pushed me. It has challenged me. And uh, I thank you for being on this crazy ride uh, with me. I'm excited. Uh, today, this is part four of our series, the final installment of our series, uh, Processing the Goose. And today I've invited on a very special guest. His name is Mike Morell. Uh, you might know him from a book that he wrote with uh, Richard Rohr, and that's actually how I heard of him. Uh, it's called The Divine Dance. He's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, what it was like to write a book with Richard Rohr and how exactly all of that uh, came about. He's going to help me process a couple of things from my experience at Wild Goose. Then he's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, contemplative Christianity and also what it looks like to uh, raise kids in this more uh, maybe progressive or forward-thinking path of Christianity uh, that we are all tackling here uh, at the What If Project. So I'm excited. It was a great conversation. Uh, I will say that I lost him about halfway through. I don't know what was happening, but I was talking. And then all of a sudden he's like, hello, hello, I, I don't hear you. And then he was gone. But then he came back like a couple minutes later and we just continued the recording. So I don't usually do a whole lot of editing on this thing. I usually just kind of just let it fly. Uh, but obviously that three minute gap where there was uh, me going, hello, hello, Mike, are you there? Uh, hello, can you hear me now, Mike? Uh, obviously, I edited all of that out, and I think it came out pretty good. So you don't really know exactly where it is. The conversation kind of uh, spliced back together very nicely. So uh, anyway, like I said, episode 56, Mike Morrell. Uh, a couple things before that. Uh, number one, I got to invite you again into the What If Project community. Um, this is a closed Facebook group, and it's really been a cool experience. Like there, I think there's 56 people in there right now. We, we get about, I don't know, like a new person every week that wants to join. Uh, you go, you click the link, you answer a couple of questions, and then you, you get in. And it's closed in the sense that like nobody can just you can just go up there and start posting or commenting whatever you want. Uh, you got to be approved. Uh, and the approval comes after you answer a question. And the question is very simply, uh, do you promise to be a safe place for people who are exploring uh, their faith? And obviously you want to answer yes. And you know that's what it is. It's a place where people come and they bring their questions and they bring their concerns and they bring their um, thoughts and their ideas about their journey. Um, and people are, it's really like a support system of people just uh, cheering each other along um, as they try to understand God and their relationship with Him and what all of that means. So people post links to stuff, uh, videos to stuff. Uh, there's conversations about the podcast and different things like that. So really, really awesome place. Um, I invite you to come in, uh, check it out, 
see what it's all about, and um, do that thing. Uh, secondly, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject uh, is where you can go to support the show. So if this thing has encouraged you, um, inspired you, uh, pushed you forward in your faith even just a little bit, uh, head over there, check it out. There's different tiers of giving, uh, $3 a month all the way up to $30 a month, and you can create your own tier um, as well. Each tier has its own uh, reward, um, and you so you get something in return uh, for giving money to the What If Project. So again, $3 a month, like a cup of coffee, up to 30 anything in between, or any uh, amount that you might want to give instead. So uh, check that out. Uh, all the money goes into a uh, pot of sorts. The money helps to support the show in the sense of keeping it online. I uh, got to pay hosting fees for the blog, for the podcast, all those different things. So uh, money goes to pay all of that uh, for a year up front. Um, I also use the money to go to Wild Goose, to the Wild Goose Festival this year. So uh, thank you to my patrons. We have 10 people. Uh, the money that you gave has been a huge help for me. Uh, it did pay for all those hosting fees, and it did get me to Wild Goose. It paid for my ticket, my gas, my money for food, uh, a hotel room, a parking pass, all those different kind of things. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart uh, for believing in this, uh, for believing in me and wanting to support me and uh, what I'm trying to doing or what I'm trying to do uh, as we all go about making a dent uh, in the universe. All that to say, uh, thanks for dropping by. This is episode number 56. Special music today is from my friend Young Citizen. Young Citizen is a uh, hip-hop artist out of Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a great guy doing great things in the world. Uh, this is from his new album called Fit. Uh, so go check it out. Link is in the show notes. And uh, enjoy the show with Mr. Mike Morell. Where we live is so bland, so much with high on demand. Tiptoe around throwing high lows, feel like James Brown, love we going here to dance. Let me talk, at the end of the day, we know who's at a fall. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the old lock. Champion, going ahead, call the ambulance. Hey everybody, welcome to the What If Project podcast. Uh, my name is Glenn, and uh, today we have the honor of sitting down to hear uh, from my friend, Mike Morell, who is going to help us close out our series, uh, Processing the Goose. So Mike is an author, teacher, thinker who leads uh, various sessions every year at Wild Goose. So Mike, it's good to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Glenn. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So Mike, I first heard about you, to be honest, uh, on the cover of the book you wrote with Richard Rohr. Uh, the book <laughs> is called The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. Uh, excellent book, by the way. Uh, but I always wondered, what was it like to write a book with the Richard Rohr. Like that's not something that everybody gets to do. So I was wondering like, how exactly did that come about? What did that conversation look like as you got the ball rolling on that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, I, and yeah, no worries. A lot of people heard of me for the first time because of my, <laughs> uh, my name uh, in the fine print on the yeah. cover of the divine dance. Uh, yeah. You know, I got to know Richard about um, what year is this? About a dozen or so years ago, hmm. helping coordinate another gathering um, kind of similar to wild goose, much smaller, doesn't exist anymore, but it was called solar eyes, a hmm. learning party. And, um, it was through these, uh, the solar eyes that happened in the Bahamas in 2007 that I got to know Richard a little bit, as well as Brennan Manning, who was there, and N.T. Wright, and um, this church historian, Rita Brock. It was just this amazing gathering of people. 
and uh, we so we connected there and then we connected again um, a few years later when I was on the team that was helping start the Wild Goose Festival. Hmm. Uh, Richard was very, um, you know, big proponent, very active in the first several years of the Goose before he semi-retired from traveling. So, you know, got to know him through that. And then, you know, when I'm not helping put together really interesting gatherings, hmm. I work in publishing. Hmm. Um, you know, for years I've been a freelance editor and ghostwriter, and I also do word of mouth publicity campaigns, helping authors and publishers launch progressive and um, contemplative Christianity titles as well as interfaith titles through my network Speakeasy, which is about a thousand bloggers and a hundred podcasts and radio show hosts that really like discussing good ideas and compelling books. Yeah. So, you know, with my background in publishing and writing, um, I had a friend, Don Milam, who is an acquisitions editor for Whitaker House. And Don was really touched by Richard's work, really wanted to publish him. And I really thought that, uh, you know, material that was in a couple conferences he did a number of years ago, one called The Divine Dance and one called The Shape of God, really deserved to be put in book form. And it was, you know, Richard's ideas, intuitions, theology of the Trinity, of God as relationship. And, and this dynamic model of the Trinity as interbeing and interrelationship really spoke to me. You know, formative in my work in publishing was helping launch the novel The Shack by Paul Young uh, years ago. And, you know, his beautiful allegory of, of the Trinity just really spoke to me. And I felt like Richard's um, conference material did the same thing. Hmm. So I approached him uh, to ask if he would be interested in me essentially ghostwriting um, that material from taking that material from the conference, transcribing it and, and working it into book form. Hmm. And while um, he does not ordinarily use ghostwriters, he was also interested in seeing that work come to light. So he said, well, sure, let, let's give it a try. So I created a few sample chapters that he really enjoyed and we began uh, collaborating from there. And it, and it did turn out to be more of a collaboration, you know, mostly through email. Uh, I, I flew out to Albuquerque a few times over the course of about a year and a half, uh, as well as to Pittsburgh, where the publisher was, as we were, you know, plotting everything out. But, um, but yeah, working with that really rich transcript material uh, through a first draft and then adding, you know, freely adding my own quotes and thoughts and ideas yeah. when I thought it would, you know, enhance uh, the material. And then Richard was so gracious with that and really, um, you know, received what I brought to the table. So much so that he insisted that I get a byline credit, which, you know, he definitely didn't have to do. And yeah. it was, uh, you know, humbling. And, and it really helped me kind of shift from being only behind the scenes and event production and writing where I had been for the previous you know, decade plus to being able to get out there more and do some of my own writing and facilitation. So really grateful for the opportunity to have worked with them on that. That's really awesome. And uh, getting to have your name on that book helped me discover you too. So <laughs> I am grateful as well. There we go. The blessing just continues. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so for those of us uh, who don't know you too well, uh, maybe those who haven't heard of you at all, uh, can you tell us like a little bit about your your story, maybe some of your upbringing, like what brought you to the place where you're at uh, today? Sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, this fall I will be 40. So I, I grew up in the South, in the Bible Belt, in the, uh, the mostly the 80s and the 90s uh, in my kind of formative years, both mm-hmm. in terms of just growing up in general and, you know, certain aspects of faith formation. I was homeschooled and, uh, you know, using various conservative Christian homeschool curriculums. Yep, yep. I, my parents had a, a born-again experience when I was about four years old after being raised in nominally Catholic and Baptist uh, backgrounds, respectively, for them. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I spent time kind of as a denominational mutt growing up <laughs> in, uh, in Southern Baptist, Assemblies of God, Independent Charismatic, and then uh, PCA Presbyterian circles sort of this, you know, ferment of, of uh, really strong Bible Belt religion, mm-hmm. you know, and I would say looking back on it now, it's like the, um, the Baptists really emphasize the hands or the will, you know, let's yep. evangelize the world in our generation. Um, you know, my Pentecostal back upbringing emphasized the heart, you know, mm-hmm. let's feel the Holy Spirit, let's feel the presence of God. Uh, transforming our lives. And it did for my parents, by the way, like when they had a a baptism in the Holy Spirit experience during that time, they both quit 20 plus year smoking habits, cold turkey, never went back. Like it really was this this formative thing where they felt this much stronger um, connection to God and much more empowerment in their lives. And then, you know, the Presbyterian background introduced me to the life of the mind. Uh, it was the first denomination I was in that encouraged me to read books. Mm. Now, <laughs> granted, it was to read their books and right. come to <laughs> of course of, of five-point Calvinism in, in a very conservative <laughs> interpretation. But, you know, the time was a real breath of fresh air. Yeah. And so, you know, all those things were kind of composting and, and fermenting in my life through my, you know, early years and my teenage years. And then right around the time when I go off to college, I discover this sort of radical decentralized house church movement. Hmm. Uh, These folks who gather in homes without clergy who have open participatory gatherings where, you know, women and men are equal. And it it also comes from a a relatively, you know, conservative evangelical mold, definitely a, a very close reading of scripture and a desire to, um, you know, emulate the first century church yeah. as, as we read it, but it also uh, was surprisingly egalitarian, surprisingly contemplative friendly. It was through the stream of the house church movement that I was first introduced to certain Christian mystics, such as Brother Lawrence, who wrote The Practice of the Presence of God, or uh, Jean Guillon, or Francois Fenelon, Michael Molinos, these, um, you know, 16th century Catholics who were uh, pushing the envelope a bit in terms of their, you know, being a part of the, you know, the hierarchy and, and the institution. They were emphasizing direct access to God, direct experience of Christ. And so, you know, in this house church background, we practiced uh, various forms of contemplative prayer and contemplative spirituality, both on our own as well as as a group, um, which in some ways is reminiscent of the early Quakers, the kind of group mysticism. So, you know, through my college years, that really formed me and I began um, forming a similar gathering on campus where I did my undergrad work. And because I was in the metro Atlanta area where I met this house church community that were a part of this worldwide network of about 20 or 30 such neighborhood-based communities. And then started gathering that way in, in college and probably could have like stayed happily on that trajectory 
had 9-11 not happened uh, while I was in college, mm. had, had the, um, you know, the, the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 uh, not occurred because when that happened, I saw this really, you know, to me, appalling uh, display of nationalism and scapegoating where, you know, yes, we were in pain because of what had just happened and, and numbing shock. I watched the, you know, second tower fall live on yeah. television. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, it's like we very quickly pivoted from collective grief to collective blame. Like, yeah, okay, this fault. must be, yeah. yeah, this must be Iraq. This must be Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the saber rattling to war and how quickly, you know, God was invoked in, in God and country. And, and it was at that time, actually, that a group of radical vineyard pastors um, had a website called kingdomnow.org, and they wrote this um, 95 theses against the nationalist idolatry of the United States. Hmm. And, uh, and it was like, you know, these vineyard pastors who had just discovered Anabaptists and, uh, and Christian anarchism. And it, it was really compelling to me. It was like, oh, man, yeah, you know, if if our unity in Christ is bigger than national identity, like why would, um, you know, Stanley Hauerwas put it, you know, a modest proposal that the Christians of the, of the world's armies stop killing each other. Mm. Uh, <laughs> if even that happened, you know, warfare would be virtually impossible. Yeah. So, you know, my horizons began to be broadened, you know, getting involved in these uh, Christian anarchist conversations, getting connected more to these radical Reformation era churches like Anabaptists and Quakers, which my house church movement also looked up to, but, you know, more drew from their personal piety rather than their political uh, expressions. Mm. And, you know, from there, getting involved on the ground floor of, of what later became known as the emerging church conversation, like all of that was swirling around uh, in my college years. And I created this links directory at the time called Sites Unseen that tried to index and categorize all these different communities I was discovering online. Like this was even pre-Google. Um, you know, there were some search engines like Dogpile and others, but most yep. <laughs> yeah, 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 but mostly I was finding, you know, what are the websites that this website I really like links to? And so there were these websites called the ooze.com, which is the one that put on Solarize and the next wave and all these groups that were having conversations pre-social media, even pre-blogging. And I began to aggregate them and then began to have in real life connections with, you know, a number of the people behind the websites. Sure. So it kind of, kind of became this weird, like, Forrest Gump of uh, progressive <laughs> Christianity as it was forming in the late 90s through the 2000s. Hmm. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit of my background. So really on the, on the ground floor of that movement, I guess. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's continued to grow and morph and change in so many, you know, beautiful ways, and occasionally in ways I find distressing. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's way bigger than what any one person can keep track of now, even a, a big nerd like me. Sure. But, but still, it's been, you know, beautiful to witness the ways in which, you know, the internet and now social media help remind us that we're not alone, that we're not the only, you know, crazy ones out there, that there are others asking these kinds of questions about God, faith, spirituality, economics, you know, warfare, civilization itself, yeah. and, uh, and finding each other, which I, I find very encouraging. That's awesome. So speaking of uh, crazy questions and things like that, uh, I have three for you that I'm going to ask. Okay. And, uh, the first one is a question about something I've been processing from uh, Wild Goose and Wisdom Camp, which you 
um, co-led with some people. And then the second and third questions kind of revolve more around uh, just the Christian faith in general and some questions that I've been asking and some of my listeners have been uh, kind of kicking around as well. So uh, that's the direction that we're going to go. And uh, awesome. so I'll set up with a, a little bit about um, my experience at Wisdom Camp. And it was, we talked a little bit off the, the air before we started, but it was an eye opener uh, for me. Hmm. And hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you kind of a question about my experience that maybe you can help me process a little bit. And I talked about this on the first episode of uh, this series that we're in. Uh, but I want to just briefly kind of retell the the story for you and also for our listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to listen to that one yet. So bear yeah. with me as I try to quickly articulate uh, this this story. Uh, but one of my biggest takeaways from uh, Wisdom Camp was really having the opportunity to both uh, face my grief and and pain that my heart has been carrying around and also kind of uh, have a, a place to release that pain. Uh, so mm-hmm. you had us get into groups. And uh, you had us name the things in our hearts that had been causing us grief. And then you invited us to go down to this river that was nearby and stick our hand in it. And in essence, let that grief go. I think you used the words, give it back to the earth and back to the God who created the earth. And so for me, uh, on that day, I really discovered what I think are two uh, significant areas of grief that I I really wasn't all that aware of until that moment that I was sitting there um, in wisdom camp, kind of opening my mouth and sharing mm. things with these people. So th- the first mm-hmm. area of grief for me um, has come from what I would say is, is losing my faith in the God of my youth. Uh, for lack of a better phrase, it's the only way I can think of wording it, but losing the faith in the God of my youth. And I've been going through this, I guess like this season of deconstruction or faith remodeling, whatever you want to call it, uh, over the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And I've also been using this podcast to kind of uh, more publicly reconstruct some of those things. Uh, but real quick, yeah. like a little bit of my background, I grew up in the evangelical world, uh, Christian school, fourth through 12th grade, you know, chapel services every Thursday, Bible college, multiple seminary degrees, pastoring more traditional, theologically conservative churches. And I always understood mm-hmm. God to be the angry dude, you know, in the sky. Mm-hmm. He sentenced his son to death uh, to be killed so that shed blood could appease his wrath. And I believe in that. I go to heaven when I die. Tell everybody else about it. You know, end of story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I don't, yeah, right. And I no longer like believe that today. Like I'm not, I'm not, not there, but even mm-hmm. so like I was comfortable with that God, you know, mm. like I grew up uh, knowing him. I knew how to please him. I knew how to talk to him. I knew how to pray all the right prayers to him, use the right language. I had my yep. theology built. I could teach him to other people. Like I felt like I had a grasp on that God. And yeah. so kind of losing my faith in him was, I guess, a form of grief that I had been carrying around that really came to the surface that day um, at, at Wisdom Camp. And so, so these days, like I find myself almost like disillusioned as I'm trying to get to know this new understanding yeah. of a God of grace and love and mercy. This God is inclusive of people. And sometimes it just feels like I'm starting from scratch. And uh, that sometimes feels very frustrating to me. So, so that's the first area of grief. Uh, yeah. second one is like what I would say is grief of... Uh, like broken relationships. So Mm -hmm. losing Mm -hmm. faith in the God of my youth seems to have inevitably caused me to also lose some friends along the way as well. And some of the people who like in the past have said the kindest things to me, like back when I was pastoring churches, preaching on Sundays, inviting people up to the altar to put their faith in Christ. Like I've also been some of the people who have said the meanest things to me, like anybody has ever said. 
And yeah. so losing those relationships or seeing them become uh, weak has also been a form of, of grief that I've been carrying around. And that's morphed into things like guilt and you know, shame and some bitterness and resentment, all sorts of different things. So all that to say, like down by the river that day, I was yep. powerful for me because I was able to share those things vocally. And it really, for the first time, uh, actually name them in various wow. uh, group settings and then really take you up on your challenge. I wanted to just sit in my seat when you told us to go down by the river, but I, I really took you up <laughs> on that challenge. I put my hand in the river as a wow. fist. I opened it up and I just kind of let it go. And I don't know what happened, but like when I got up, I just felt like this fresh bit of perspective come in. And I, I guess I came up from the river feeling more loved and accepted than I did when I went, when I went down. And wow. so all of that to say, my question for you is, you know, what words of wisdom do you have for someone like me who's in the midst of this, this journey of rethinking God, rethinking faith, reimagining, you know, what is this Christian narrative that, that we're part of? And, and I ask all that because at the same time, after I did that episode a couple of weeks ago, I had a lot of people like reach out to me and send me an email, shoot me a message, say, hey, like you put words on exactly what I'm feeling. Like I'm in the same place you are and I don't know what to do. So all, all of that, yeah. uh, no pressure, <laughs> but what, <laughs> what, what is your response to that, to that story? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful that our exercise and that we invited you all to in wisdom camp was meaningful for you in that Thank way. You. And, Thank you. and yeah, and I like how you said, you know, first I didn't want to get up. Like I, <laughs> I, I you know, went down, I actually walked by the river, I actually put my hand in the water. Yeah. Um, you know, I imagine that you're kind of like me in that the life of the mind is very active. And sometimes I think that that's all I really need. I mean, I might acknowledge conceptually that, yeah, things I, gestures I do with my body could matter. And okay, I'll feel things if I need to. <laughs> but yep, exactly. Uh, you know, Get me a I, journal I, and tell me what to do and I'll be fine. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> tell me what to think and I'll be fine. Yep. Uh, you know, and so I think with grief, especially, you know, it's something that, yes, it does happen in our minds, but it also happens in our, our emotional life and it even happens in our bodies. Mm. Um, you, you know, the uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler have the classic, you know, five stages of grief they talk about where it's like denial and then anger and then bargaining, mm. and then often depression, and, and finally acceptance. And, um, you know, more recently, uh, Kessler's said there's a sixth stage of grief, which is finding meaning. Mm. And, and it kind of reminds me of what the, you know, Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann talks about, about how, you know, the narrative that we see in the Psalms is this sort of, um, you know, orientation to life in a certain way. And then there's disorientation uh, when things happen that, that totally knock our theologies, knock our paradigms, knock our relationships off their rockers. And then, you know, eventually, if we stay with it, there's new orientation. Hmm. And, and, you know, that's an easy thing to say, but I think that the, the gift of contemplative spirituality and contemplative practice, in other words, not just contemplative ideas, is to stay with that grief and witness it long enough to see it transform. Mm. And, um, you know, like right now, 
to be a little personal, I'm, I'm doing this uh, paradigm known as somatic experiencing to work through certain um, sensory integration issues I've discovered I've had in a sort of lifetime of anxiety that I've, I've lived with. Mm. And, you know, for 20 years, I worked with, in various mental forms of, of therapy, ranging from, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy to hypnotherapy, working on the ideas and wondering what, what thoughts in my mind might have caused me uh, anxiety. And, and what somatic experiencing is inviting me into is the possibility that while, yes, my, my thought life does play a role, that primarily this anxiety is stored in my body and primarily the way in which to discharge it is to be with it in my body, to mm. be with the sensations as they arise and to simply accept them just as they are without trying to alter them. And I think that at heart, uh, Christian contemplative practice, specifically centering prayer, is an invitation to do just that. Mm. It's an invitation to sit once or twice a day for 20 minutes and simply be with everything that arises with a background understanding, or if, if understanding is too much to ask for, a background hope that we are in the presence of, of a loving and merciful God. Mm. And then as all the stuff arises in our chattering minds, Unlike more Eastern forms of meditation, the goal in centering prayer is not to um, try to concentrate on something. It's not to try to think of no thing. It's not even to follow the breath. It's to exercise this internal muscle of letting go, letting go. Um, so if I have a thought, awesome, I'm, I'm acknowledging it and I'm releasing it. Kind of like you're a fisherman catching and releasing. And, and it's modeled after um, the spirituality of Jesus as named in the kenosis hymn in Philippians 4 that a lot of scholars think is like the, one of the, the very first Christian hymns where it says, you know, Jesus seeing a quality with God, not, um, not something to be grasped, instead emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So it's this idea of emptying and letting go in a trust that there's greater abundance if we simply are there if we can simply be. Hmm. That's really good. And, and it is really good. It's a nice thing to say, but I think it's another thing entirely, for me at least, to like actually do the work, do the practice, and, and let the practice work its gifts upon us. And, and that's one way to do it. You know, other ways to do it, and, and we explore some of this in the back um, exercises in the Divine Dance. You know, when, when Father Richard and I were talking, we were like, you know, a lot of Christian spirituality practices are a solo sport, mm. uh, you know, meditation, contemplation, they're things we do alone. And we might like sing together in corporate worship, but, you know, the really deep, vulnerable, mystical, contemplative stuff we often see as, you know, things that we're doing on our own. But because I discovered contemplative practices in my house church background and because I knew, you know, what the early Quakers experienced and because I also delve into these, um, you know, non-Christian, non-religious, um, authentic relating practices, relational skills building practices uh, throughout my early 30s, I knew there were these other exercises that were possible that were, we were not like sort of all facing forward or all looking inward, focusing on God. As though God, but there are ways in which we can make direct silent connection with each other or even verbal connection with each other and follow a thread of aliveness between two or more people in a way that magnifies the image of God inside of us. Hmm. That's helpful. And I think for me, like the hardest thing when I got home, um, I was 
journaling about this and talking about it like nonstop. And I had told you earlier that I, before we started recording that I've been talking a lot to Alexander Shia and yeah. he, I, I was texting with him and telling him about my experience. And he said, that's good, but what are you going to do with it? <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a very good question because like you said, you know, people yep. like myself and like yourself, we get stuck in our head. Oh, yeah. we, we process all this stuff and we never end up doing it. And uh, mm-hmm. that's something I've always like, you know, you go to a conference, you go to a retreat or whatever you want to call it. And you come back with all these great ideas and journals yeah. full of stuff. But, you know, you go back to your life and you have the best intentions, but it never ends up kind of materializing into much. So I think that's yeah. helpful. And that really leads into my second question, which was about contemplative Christianity. Uh, mm-hmm. Because that, that's something that is also very new to me. And I've been, you know, reading about it, I've been talking to people about it, but I, I really struggle with like, what does it look like? First of all, like, especially for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with it, what, what is the, the difference between uh, contemplative Christianity and the Christianity that you would find, you know, in a normal evangelical church on a Sunday morning? Like, what's the, why do mm-hmm. we call it contemplative Christianity and not just Christianity? And then also like, what does it look like for somebody like myself, for instance, like I work for Apple, you know, it's a retail job. It's a nine to six job every day, hour drive to work. We have a two-year-old, you know, so the work doesn't stop when you get home. Um, it starts early in the morning. Like, what does it look like to practice contemplative Christianity um, in that kind of setting? That's a big question. So, Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start with that last question. You yeah, know, yeah. It, was, it was really modeled for me. Um, you know, one of, one of my, my friends and colleagues and in many ways mentors um, is a contemplative Christian teacher um, also here in the Southeast named Carl McCullman. Hmm. And I uh, highly recommend you um, looking up his writing online, carlmcullman.com. He also co-hosts a contemplative podcast called Encountering Silence. That's oh, just okay. beautiful. Um, but when I, um, you know, first got to know Carl a dozen or more years ago um, and, you know, got to spend some time with, with him and his family, um, you know, what I discovered was that, um, you know, he also had a, you know, nine to five kind of job. He happened to work at the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, hmm. but he was, you know, for many years managing their bookstore. So, you know, a very, very normal kind of job in an unusual space and, you know, his, his wife um, works for the, worked for the school system and, and they had, you know, an adult special needs daughter. And every morning they started off with, with 20 minutes of, of contemplative prayer together mm. um, at a little family altar. And, uh, you know, it was challenging to me in my own sort of feeling like I was too busy to, uh, to do, you know, take time out for practices like that. But to see that, no, they absolutely prioritize this. They, you know, it wasn't just that Carl was uh, talking about this kind of stuff. It was, uh, it was a real practice that could really be done in, in everyday life. And, you know, I even think of, uh, of Bushi, um, who was one of our teachers at Wisdom yeah. Camp this year. And, and, you know, similarly, him and his family have uh, a practice. And, you know, for them, it's even <laughs> more hardcore. I think for Bushi, he spends about 18 hours of his day, including sleep time, uh, in silence mm. and, uh, you know, and, and invites the family to do the same. And then they have, you know, time where they, they speak wow. and, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of next level. That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if I'm, I'm wanting to aspire to that, but, the major um, 
Yeah. But all that said, you know, we have more choice than we think in terms of how we structure our day, even if we're, you know, working class, nine to five people, um, you know, I waste so much time on social media. I know I can take 20 or even 40 minutes out of my day for either myself or me with my family to, um, to practice these things. Mm. But, but what are these things? And so that gets back to your earlier question yeah. of, you know, what is contemplative uh, Christianity? How is that maybe different than sort of mainstream evangelical conservative Christianity that we grew up with? And, you know, to me, it's a pity that they even have to have different labels and, and have to have different names, because I think that contemplative Christianity um, ought to be a part of normative Christianity uh, as it is practiced. And I say a part because I don't think actually that it's the entire package. I think that um, contemplative Christianity is the inner life. It's about you know cultivating this uh, this inner sense of of awareness, this inner sense of um, wisdom, a way to to perceive. And I think it actually pairs nicely with you know what we might call the outer life of of religion. You know, I know these days it's popular to say I'm, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. And I totally respect why people come to that place, especially if they grew up in toxic religion, which many of us have. Hello. Uh, <laughs> and, and we think, oh, okay, so religion is all the stuff I don't like. And spirituality is all the puppy dogs and rainbows and stuff that I do like. Uh, when I think the reality is a little more complicated, you know, again, going back to my friend Carl, he talks about how, you know, contemplative spirituality or mysticism is like the sap inside of a tree. It's, it's what grows. It's what's alive inside of the tree that pushes the fruit out of the branches. And religion is like the bark. It's the, you know, it's the hardened stuff. Maybe sometimes it is, as Bono said, what happens when, you know, godly religions, what happens when God leaves the building. But maybe in a more functional way, you can see it as the sort of, you know, codification of certain practices that, you know, end up being test, standing the test of time and, and being what we do externally. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, healthy religion you know, might be like, oh, yeah, so we're going to gather, we're, we happen to gather on Sunday mornings, and yeah, we're going to sing some songs, and we're going to hear something, and, you know, in my house church days, we were so iconoclastic, we're like, why do we need to meet on Sundays, why do we need to have a sermon, and I think those are good questions to ask, too, don't mm. get me wrong, uh, you know, my, my house church community met on Saturday nights, and we had open participatory gatherings, but guess what, after a few years of practicing together, we still developed certain habits of being that, um, you know, served us, that they weren't inherently negative, and I think that, you know, there's certain external, um, you know, happenings, like what James says in his epistle about, you know, how good religion is, you know, caring for the poor and the widows. Mm. Uh, you know, there's so many healthy churches. I'm, I'm really grateful here in Asheville who have such a community presence uh, in terms of standing up to, um, to ICE and, uh, and working with on um, behalf of immigrants and working on behalf of folks who live outside and, and building homes and, and being out in the streets and also working for legislation. And, you know, my friend, who are spiritual but not religious and only, you know, see God and walks in the woods. I'm like, yeah, but you're also, then you have to end up paying the play for your spirituality. You have to like, you know, pay for expensive yoga classes and, and retreats every now and then. And you're, you're recreating religion, whether you see it that way or not, but it's a little bit less village oriented. It's a little less communal. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to see is folks who are spiritual and religious, who recognize the need for the sap and the bark and who can create healthy, functional religious systems that can be safe containers to hold the vulnerability of our inner lives. Mm. Wow. 
that's deep. <laughs> well, and, and, you and, know, it, and so, and I think it's so cool that, you know, I mean, like you said earlier, it's, it, it's a shame that that has to be uh, almost labeled as separate entities, mm-hmm. Christianity, when in reality, uh, they really both fall under the same umbrella. You know, I mean, it just seems like it's yeah. so silly that we have to, we, that's like who we are. Like as humans, we label things, we build tribes, right. you're that kind, I'm this kind, but really yes. it's, it's one kind. Yes, uh, you know, at least ideally. I think that, you know, contemplative Christianity, the best, healthiest forms of it are, you know, do have a different maybe sort of theological compass, even in terms of thinking in that, Mm -hmm. you know, God is seen primarily as lover and, you know, our identity is seen primarily as beloved. Us as humans, non-human creation, the cosmos itself is seen in this, you know, divine dance of, of love. And, you know, and it's not just like a really thin paper, thin concept of love or this kind of hallmark moment. We're talking about centuries and millennia of really in-depth, you know, thinking and feeling and being on a bodily level that accesses this idea that God is available to us, that God is not distant, God is not remote, that God's closer than our very breath. Or, you know, in in the the Sufi tradition of Islam, uh, in the Quran, it says that, you know, God is closer than the pulse of our own jugular vein. Mm. And, and I think that, um, you know, mystics are people who try to live in that reality more. And it's technically a reality that virtually all Christians will mentally assent to, even with the doctrine of omniscience, that, you know, God is, or not, or not omniscience, but omnipresence, that God is everywhere. You know, most, most Christians, if you twist their arm, they're like, yes, God is everywhere. But then, you know, in our kind of conservative evangelical upbringing, there was always a very quick but, but... Right. Know, but we're sinful, and so God can't look upon sin. It's like, really? Well, what was you know the psalmist David talking about? About you know, if I if I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I if I you know make my bed in hell, you are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's these interesting little folk beliefs that have have crept in uh, that dilute the the power and the immediacy and the availability of God. And then you know, of course, it ends up going in with these you know elaborate theories of of sin and atonement. Um, where, you know, the death of, of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, rather than simply being a demonstration of the relentless uh, love of God and how nothing, not even death, not even, you know, the collusion of, of unhealthy religion and empire could separate us from the love of God, could separate us from the power of the Sermon on the Mount and the values that Jesus, you know, was bringing us with the kingdom of God, somehow um, we've ended up buying into the logic of empire that, you know, that that, that death and crucifixion need to happen and, you know, that we can unironically support the death penalty (laughs) as uh, contemporary (laughs) Christians. Like, really? You know, what if we had these electric chairs dangling around our necks as a sign of devotion? Like, what's what's going on here? Hmm. So, you know, it is unfortunate that, um, that this happens. I think that, um, you know, both secular sociologists and various esoteric teachers, though, do talk about the life cycles of institutions and how things go from vibrant movements started by charismatic leaders to eventually becoming institutions that are concerned with their own self-preservation to the point where they end up turning against the very ideals of their founder in order to preserve the institution. And I think, you know, if we look throughout history, 
sadly, time and time again, that has definitely happened with Christianity, which is why you have these various revival movements, whether it's, you know, St. Francis and Clare with the Franciscans or George Fox and Margaret Fell with the Quakers and, you know, these various revivals that, you know, capture some aspect of, of this and that. But, you know, I think that even that can become a bit of a trap where we're constantly seeking the pure thing. And mm -hmm. I think that that is the, the Protestant disease in some ways is this mm, belief rooted in, in ego, I think, that says, okay, these, all, these people all got it wrong. We're going to get it right this time because we're going to do this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And there's this kind of hubris to that. And, and what I prefer is instead of a metaphor of, of purit puritanism or purifying, and we're finally going to be the ones that get it right, I prefer the metaphor of compost that, you know, spending time with permaculture communities and looking at how beautifully they compost their mess, how they compost their waste. It's like, even if these life cycles of institutions produce decline and rot, even that rot can produce fertile soil for the next move of the spirit. And if I enter that next move of the spirit in such a way that I'm not saying, oh, finally, I'm the one who's getting it right. But man, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I stand, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cultivating the soil of the legacy of all these movements that have come before, even the ones that might be a bit rotten, even the ones that might be a bit corrupt or disappointing to me, they're still producing the soil that I get to grow in. It's a lot more humility and it's a lot less setting myself up for failure. Mm. That's really helpful because a lot of times when you get into that, you know, that phase of, of deconstruction and stuff, you, it's, it's tempting to throw everything out from the past. Yes. You know, yes. that's all wrong. That's not right. I reject mm -hmm. all of that. And there's that yep. temptation there, but I think it's a beautiful thought to look at that as parts of it might be compost, you know, parts of it might be rotten. So part of it's part of it might not have served, um, you know, served you well in a sense, but you yep. can still stand on it and it can still uh, give life to what you're doing now and, you know, moving forward. You know, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in the last uh, few weeks, we've had a couple of prominent evangelicals, one, you know, here in, in uh, the U S and one in Aust I think Australia or UK, yeah. uh, Marty yeah. Sampson and, and Josh Harris, who have, you know, publicly said, wow, what's all this crazy stuff that I've been raised with? I don't identify as a Christian anymore. Mm. And, you know, I think we see, you know, of course, more conservative folks predictably, um, you know, denouncing this and, and doing some soul searching, mostly denouncing these guys for, you know, straying from the, from the, the straight and narrow and, and folks on the progressive, you know, Christian side, as well as the post-theistic side, maybe equally predictably uh, rejoicing and being, and being really happy about this. Mm. And, and I find myself in an interesting place where I, I am happy that they're no longer putting up with, you know, simply regurgitating what they were told. But the part of me that, that is a nerd uh, is also like, man, but you're, you're rejecting all of Christianity based on this very narrow bandwidth of what you experienced. Mm. And I get how in each of their cases, you know, one was in Delirious and worked for Hillsong. The other was like a, before he was even known for I Kiss Dating Goodbye, he's the son yeah. of Greg Harris, who was this homeschooling guru in the 80s. Uh, that, you know, for both of them, I'm sure they, they probably literally traveled the world within their, um, their stream of Christianity. So it's only natural that they would see that as, um, you know, the totality of, of what there is. And if they're going to um, reject that, they are rejecting Christianity. 
But again, with this composting, I'm like, man, have you heard of the faith communities in the civil rights movement? Have you heard of the Quakers? Have you heard of the Anabaptists? Have you heard of the mystics? Have you heard of the Eastern Orthodox for whom theology is mysticism and for, for whom there's much more latitude on the duration and nature of, of hell? And that so many Orthodox believe it's actually more like purgatory that purifies mm. us. And, you know, there's so many streams of faith that don't have the hangups that you and I and, and, uh, and they grew up with. And it's like, wow, there's this whole world out there. And that doesn't mean they have to, you know, continue to identify as, as Christians. But sure. what I see happening time and time again is, um, you know, folks deconvert. Um, they go through a deconstruction, they deconvert, and then they're, say, an atheist or a Buddhist or a Wiccan, neo-pagan, and, mm. and, and, and others. But those actually seem to be the three biggest ones that my friends tend to deconvert. <laughs> it's sometimes weirdly like multiples of them. Like, I don't understand how you can be a tarot-reading atheist, but okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> And but what what uh, what happens is, is invariably um, for years they have or maybe months depending on how quickly they they burn through it they have this sort of new convert energy where you know Christianity is all bad and all negative and man their new newfound you know faith or or unfaith tradition that is so wise and it's so magnanimous and it's so so beautiful and they're rightly picking up on things that are wise and magnanimous and beautiful about what they're looking at but after they spend a few years in it if they really rub shoulders with people in their various streams and their various movements if they really dive deep into the complex history of those movements they'll inevitably come to the same disappointments the same points of breakdown uh, and disintegration that led them out of christianity as they experienced it hmm. and you know for me i'm just kind of like yeah i want to stay in my lane all all love and all respect to these other traditions but I just feel like I'd be appropriating something that isn't really mine. And then I would be maybe distorting it for a while. And then I would get just as cynical about that as I would my own faith tradition when I learned that, oh, yeah, you know, Buddhists can also commit genocide and sexually abuse people. And, you know, atheists also have misogynists in them. And so many, you know, pagans are actually white nationalists. Hmm. It's like, oh, you know, there's, there's so, there are these things that, uh, that are disappointing about all of us and there are things that are beautiful about all of us. And yeah. so I've, you know, I've let go of trying to have even one better theology about God. I, I think that, um, you know, my experience of God is mediated by all of our many stories about God, all of our myths and legends and theophanies and prayer chains and elegant theologies and bad sermons and off-key hymns and pop songs and superstitions. Like, certainly God is more than this, but, but also not less than the embodiment of these stories. Wow. That's awesome. And I think, I, I love too how you said, you know, when someone switches to another stream, you know, the deeper they dig, they'll find in that stream what they're unhappy with in their mm -hmm. former stream. And I think, mm -hmm. too, I think the, the flip side of that is probably also true that the deeper that you dig, the more you find that what you loved about your old stream is probably also in the stream that you just moved to. And I think that that shows oh, the, sure. right, the unity of, of all of us. Like you said, we're all, we're all together. We're all, we're all in this thing together. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah. and I suppose, you know, if we're getting technical, there's the same danger of what I just talked about, about moving from, say, being an evangelical to an Anabaptist. And, I, and I've seen mm -hmm. folks do that, too, where then they're like, oh, wait, Mennonites are mostly cranky white people, and, and maybe their pacifism <laughs> is actually born out of privilege rather than solidarity. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, we can, we can see the warts and everything, and, and maybe you could even see the beauty in <laughs> conservative <laughs> evangelicalism if you stuck right. with it. Right. I wouldn't 
necessarily recommend that to anyone. But uh, yeah, so, you know, you're right. We are all in this together. And I think, you know, if we begin to have some uh, humility and grace, we'll, we'll be a lot happier. Yeah, for sure. So my last question uh, spins off of that. And uh, can you tell me, like, what does it look like to raise kids in this contemplative path? And uh, I asked that because, again, you know, I grew up evangelical. It's what I know best. Uh, this mm-hmm. is God I know best. And I find myself, like, uncertain as to how to talk to my daughter. She's only two right now. But, like, mm-hmm. even, even now, like, she understands things. She's putting things together. She prays yep. before dinner. Uh, she has her little prayer that she says. But, like, we have these yep. figurines on our fireplace mantle. And they're, like, these little, uh, like, figurines of various scenes from Jesus' life. And mm-hmm. she always says, I want to go see Jesus. So she wants to go downstairs. We pick her up. We walk down the mantle. We tell her what each one of these stories is. Now here's John the Baptist and Jesus turning water into wine. And she like adores these stories. But like as she grows, she's going to start asking questions. And yep. I'm just wondering, like, what's your advice for talking to your kids about, about God in this way? Like what have you learned from your own experience? Yes, absolutely. And I think that... Um, you know, yeah, and I have I have two two daughters, and yeah. uh, one of them is is five and has special needs, and and one of them is twelve and uh, <laughs> has different special needs, but uh, <laughs> it's quite uh, don't we all? Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, it's quite advanced cognitively, and yeah. uh, you know, that loves school and, and everything, and and yeah, I think you know one one thing that's great is that there are are so many uh, resources now that that didn't exist when I was growing up, mm. um, you know, for children. So on the content-based side, there's like the Children of God Storybook Bible by uh, Desmond Tutu is, is fantastic. Okay. And there are these other, you know, kinds of um, kids, biblical resources that won't uh, scar them, mm. uh, that are sort of age-appropriate. <laughs> uh, from a progressive uh, point of view, my, my friend and colleague, uh, Cindy Wang Brandt, she has... Um, uh, parenting, what is it called? Unfundamentalist parenting. Yes, and I think that. she's actually got a, um, a progressive Christian online parenting conference uh, mm. coming up soon. I'll send you a link to it. Okay. Um, and so there's all these kinds of resources. There's even um, a book on, on centering prayer for children that, um, that I, I like using. Um, hold on, let me try, see if I can find the name of it for you yeah. real quick. Uh, Journey to the Heart, Centering okay. Prayer for Children. And it teaches a very gentle, like, you know, seven-minute version of, of uh, Centering Prayer to kids. And so when, when Jubilee was younger, you know, we would we would read that and we would practice Centering Prayer together, silent prayer together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes it was sublime. Other times, you know, she's squirmy and <laughs> can't stand it. Um, seconds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, what I also did, you know, kind of in line with what I said before about not trying to even micromanage yeah. all the various stories and legends about God. I mean, I'm not going to deliberately expose, you know, my kids to super toxic theology. But one thing that I did do, um, because Jubilee is such a, a voracious reader, um, and like me, she enjoys comic books, there are all kinds of different manga Bibles out there. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, like Zondervan did one about a dozen or so years ago. It's black and white. It's really good. There are a couple other are good ones. And when I say they're good, I mean that they're, you know, there are these dramatic uh, depictions of the biblical narrative, often Genesis through Revelation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
a lot of them are produced by more evangelical sources, but insofar as they're, you know, attempting to, to be faithful to the source, they reflect all the, all the beauty and, and sometimes the cringeworthiness of the uh, original text itself. Mm. And so, you know, I've, you know, just got them for, for my daughter and, and she would read them, you know, straight through. And then we'd have conversations about them mm. and, and got to do some like textual, com- you know, comparative uh, studies right then and there. Cause she'd be like, Oh, interesting. Like when I read this manga Bible series, they, they showed the fall of Jericho in this way and said this, but then this series says this, I'm mm. like, yeah, what do you make out of that? Like, right. why, do you, why, do you, why do you think they have these like different ways of, uh, of seeing things? Like, mm. How is it maybe different people can have different experiences of God and and are people's, you know, self-reporting of their experiences of God? Does that mean God's definitely that way? Or does that mean that that's that's what they experienced in their their community and their lives? And so, you know, beginning to introduce critical thinking, um, you know, not all at once and not in some super disillusioning kind of way, but, uh, you know, to have that in the mix is uh, super helpful. And and I'd say, you know, being being open to questions and conversations, you know, now that she's in her tweens, I feel like we have less of those kind of open-ended <laughs> spiritual conversations at the moment. She's a little more like, shut up, dad. <laughs> uh, Leave me alone. <laughs> I, I find my middle school, uh, you know, teacher who talks about Joseph Campbell to be more interesting than you. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, that's fine. Uh, you know, but then the final thing I'd say, you know, kind of going back to that, the value of not only esoteric uh, spirituality, the inward journey, but exoteric religion, the sort of outer communal containers that provide some kind of stability, you know, having having a faith community that doesn't suck uh, is mm. super valuable. And, you yeah. know, and, find, and finding those. And, and I think they are, they are out there. There's so many out there. And one of my biggest frustrations as someone who works in marketing, you know, for authors and publishers is that progressive Christianity in all of its various facets, um, open-hearted, more generous Christianity, has is almost invisible uh, to the media. I mean, it's increasingly so in, a, in the Trump era. People are like running articles about, oh wow, there's some Christians that white Christians that that don't love Trump, and uh, <laughs> you know, like what is this weird exotic zoo animal? Right. Uh, but uh, you know, but by and large, you know, it's hard to find these communities. But they're they're everywhere. And you know, one one place that I recommend these days is uh, churchclarity.org. And and Church Clarity started um, to ask congregations very specific questions about do you affirm and ordain women and do you affirm and ordain LGBTQ folks? Hmm. And those are, those are the only two things that they, they care about as an organization. And, and they, they formed because so many, um, you know, kind of Hillsongy seeker sensitive mega churches pretend they talk a big game about everyone's welcome. We love everyone. But when you get down to it, certain, you know, some animals are more equal than others. And uh, as the church clarity really drills down those questions and publishes the results. And so you can find, um, you know, LGBTQ and of course, female affirming women affirming uh, congregations through their site. And, you know, not that those are the only two things that everyone cares about, but that, but if, if if a church is affirming in those elements, it's much more likely to be overall a more awesome church. And so that's that's one place to look. Um, you know, there are other ways to, to sort of seek out these open-hearted communities. Even a lot of traditional denominations these days have you know ministers and and communities that are either quietly or vocally deconstructing 
asking questions and, you know, moving to, to beautiful spaces. Um, You know, I have some friends in the Southeast who recently started attending a vineyard church and they were really wanting to find like an affirming progressive church. And I said, man, I I love vineyard folks, but you know, a lot of them are are a lot more conservative on certain things, but Mm -hmm. to their surprise, they they've actually found now these folks are reading Richard Rohr. They're, you know, they're affirming and they're trying to, you know, bring the church on board. And Mm -hmm. so you know, I think there's a lot of beautiful things happening and having that external support for parenting specifically is valuable, especially when your kids become tweens and teens and you as the parent aren't the only, you know, voice of authority in their lives anymore. Uh, it's good to have these other spaces. So like my my daughter just got back from her very first ever summer camp and it's this, you know, progressive Christian uh, youth camp. And she loved it. And it was so enriching to her. And, you know, she's wanting to uh, become baptized. Mm -hmm. And for her, you know, baptism isn't this, you know, fire insurance from hell or this, you know, sort of legalistic demand, but it's joining this community of people who are seeking to, you know, live humbly and and do justice and and love mercy and and walk with God. Like that's Mm -hmm. the Christianity she's being raised with. And it's thrilling to me, the thought that, you know, hopefully my parenting in general and her faith tradition in particular will, will involve less hours in therapy than maybe mine did. <laughs> right. I hope the same for myself. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. That's my modest goal. A little That's less right. therapy. Just a little bit. And they'll put as much money aside as I needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and I love, I love that too, that I think, it, I think I was taught, hearing uh, Pete End might have been done to kind of video, maybe it was a podcast, something like that, but somebody asked mm-hmm. him a similar question and he said, you know, one of the most important things is when your child asks you a question, don't feel like you have to give an immediate answer, but turn it around uh, yeah. and say, what do you think? And I think yep. from my background, and it sounds like maybe your background as well, coming from like having all the answers, um, yep. the temptation again is to, you know, hear the question and give the answer and then leave it at that. But I think it's so powerful to say, like you said, with your daughter, yep. well, why are all these different versions of this story and all these different Bibles? Like, well, what do you think about that? You know, yep. and then have that conversation. I think that's a really key piece of advice. Because even now, my daughter's like she's only two, but like you could tell she's really inquisitive, and yes. she, you can almost we are starting to have like a conversation together. So I think it's going to be, I think she's going to be one to dialogue, especially at a younger age. So, yep, yeah, that's that's when mine started. My oldest was around two. Yeah, starts asking these really interesting questions. I forget the exact nature of them, but I know I know she had several early on about the gender of God, and mm-hmm. you know, could God all is God a girl? Is God a boy? And you know. Uh, you know, these really interesting questions. I think she eventually came to the conclusion that, that my Jesus is a girl. And I was mm. like, okay. Okay. <laughs> let's roll with that. Yeah. Let's, let's, you know, that uh, Julina Norwich said something very similar about the, uh, the mothering nature of, of Christ. Yes. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's there. It's in our tradition. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. Such, such good questions though, Glenn. I'm glad that we're uh, able to, to chat about all this. Thank you. Yeah. We are just about out of time. So I want to be respectful of your uh, Friday and let you go. Uh, so thank you for coming on. It was great to, to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. And I uh, will do you it later. again some time. You got it, bud. Bye-bye. So much for high on demand. Tiptoe around through and high lows. So like James Brown, let me go in here to dance. Let me talk. At the end of the day, we know who's at a fall. We got our hands up, ready for a box. Undisputed, got the own lot. Champion. Go ahead, call the ambulance. So we said our own ambience. Dub TTG train to go. Let's talk, no rambling. Wishing I had something for it. Wishing I had something for it. Knowing that I can afford it. Knowing that I can afford it. It's real love, it's real love. But I just ignore it. 